Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. It used to be kind of a blue state, red state thing. Demand for EVs was growing in states that voted blue. And we don't see that anymore. Our fastest growing markets are in Texas and Florida. Wow, it's not political anymore because frankly, there's lots of choices for the urban cowboys. Hey everyone, the future is electric, especially when it comes to cars. Demand for electric vehicles is far outpacing supply, and automakers are rolling out more and more EV models as governments around the world set clear timelines for when new gas-powered cars will no longer be allowed to be sold. The transition to electric vehicles is good news for our climate. Transportation creates over a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions, and about 40% of that comes from cars. This episode focuses on where we're at in the transition to EVs, and I'm joined by two true experts. Kyle Stock is a senior writer for Bloomberg Green. He writes about cars and has his finger on the pulse of EV trends. Kathy Zoy is the CEO of EVGo, the largest public electric vehicle charging network in the U.S. Kathy has extensive experience in the energy sector and is building the infrastructure we need for the switch to electric vehicles. We talk about the current state of the EV market, which cars are hot and who's buying them, as well as the impact of recent legislation, our evolving user experience with cars, and much more. I learned a lot, I'm sure you will too. Enjoy. Kyle and Kathy, welcome to Invest in Climate. Thanks so much for being here. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Great. Where are you both located today? Where are you calling in from? Santa Monica. I'm near Princeton, New Jersey, Jason. Okay, we've got a cross-country episode, and we're a week out from Thanksgiving. Hopefully, you've recovered from all of the feasting and did enjoy some downtime and some rest for, oh, I'm sure, busy end-of-the-year schedules. Yeah, it's all good. I'm just happy the kids are back in school, honestly. I hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Well, we've got a lot to dive into. Kyle, you're a senior writer for Bloomberg Green, the climate-focused platform of Bloomberg News. You write a lot about cars. Let's start at a super high level. Tell us about the state of the electric vehicle market today. Yeah, it's fascinating for one. I'll start with sort of the product side. The cars are finally really great, these electric vehicles. You know, for a long time, maybe Tesla aside, these were kind of eat your vegetable products. They were very good at <laughs> virtue signaling, but they weren't necessarily good at curb appeal or a lot of the other things that the auto industry really likes to 
to hit on the head, but they're kind of better in every way than a gas-powered car now. Um, if you're into performance driving, they are better at that. If you're into off-road driving, they're better at that. They're quieter and they're finally big. So we have, you know, a bunch of pickup trucks, a bunch of big three-row SUVs on the market. And this has all happened very recently. So there's about 30 models, full EV models for sale in the U.S. right now. And about half of those hit the market in the past 12 months. So fascinating early time. It's just like a rash of product going out there. Maybe not surprisingly, demand is really high and higher than a lot of car executives expected. I'd be interested to hear your take on this too, Kathy. But when these cars showed up in forms and shapes and sizes and capabilities that people really care for in this country, you know, the American public was there for it. So right now, the market share in the U.S. is somewhere around 6%. Globally, it's somewhere closer to 10 to 15%. And then if you look at surveys in the U.S., still with that low adoption, roughly a third to half of U.S. drivers say they want one of these cars. So that's 7 to 9 million people a year. So demand is high. It's outpacing expectations. The interesting thing is it's looking like supply is going to be the problem. In the first half of the year, U.S. automakers only made 4% of their products were EVs, or that's North American factories. So there's a big lag between demand and supply. And a lot of that is a lot of these companies are startups. They're spooling up their factories for the first time. There's the chip problem, which continues. And then, you know, with the larger incumbent players, they're still building the supply chain for these cars and the unit economics in ways that, you know, they're not fully fleshed out yet. So it's possible that demand is going to be ahead of supply for EVs in this country for years now. But demand does not appear to be a problem or an issue. People are here for it. Yeah, I mean, Jason, I would add to what Kyle said. Like when I started at EVgo in 2017, there were kind of two non-Tesla EVs to choose from. You know, Kyle talked about how many are available now. And what's even more exciting is in the next 18 months, there's supposed to be 130 models available in the US, right? And so if you want to drive a little car, you got that choice. If you want to drive a pickup truck, you got that choice and like everything in between. So there's just a huge amount of anticipation. I mean, I've got lots of friends who were on waiting lists for EVs. Every EV that gets made gets sold the moment it hits a showroom or the moment it hits the website. <laughs> so that's really exciting. Just a quick plug. You know, there's a lot of noise between the, the vehicles these companies are designing, showing, and then there's usually a big lag between when they do that and when they actually sell them and when they're available. So we, we sort of built this platform where you can see exactly what's on the market right now. It's a Bloomberg Green EV ratings, and then we rate the the sort of climate footprint of each of these cars. But even there, you know, you can see the proliferation. It's a long list now and it's every month we're adding another machine or two. Let's go deeper into that and just talk more about the types of vehicles. Tesla, of course, has gotten a lot of buzz and rightly so. It's transformed the EV market and really the perception of electric vehicles. But you've also written that the hottest EVs in the US right now aren't Teslas. So I'm curious, what are they? The rest of the pack is taking market share from Tesla. Tesla sales are up, but they're not gaining as quickly as, as the followers. So Ford is doing a good job. They have, um, they call it the Mustang Mach-E, which is sort of a SUV-ish, a sporty SUV. It's kind of a sweet spot type vehicle for Americans. It's not tiny. It's kind of sporty. It's kind of big. You could use it with a family. That's selling very well. And then the Korean brands, Hyundai and Kia, 
each have a vehicle, a new EV. Key is the EV600, is the Ionic 5. And those are also kind of sweet spot vehicles. They're, there's a lot of cargo space. They're very sporty. They're not super expensive, although they are expensive. And demand for those has just been red hot all year. So they're kind of sleeper dark horses in this race. Um, everyone expected you know, Subaru and Volkswagen and to really sort of win over the mass populace. But it's these other vehicles that are really doing well at the moment. And how do you explain that? What do you think is really driving that demand? I think from a product strategy, you know, these companies really went all in on these vehicles. So if you talk to Hyundai and Kia, and I, I do often, they talk about, you know, four or five years ago when they're really at the whiteboard designing these vehicles, just the, the general message to, to go for it. And internally, the, the sort of culture of the company that this is the future of the p- company, this isn't a one-off R&D exercise, let's make something really great here. And it wasn't so much a conversation of like, let's beat Tesla. It was, this is the entire future of the industry. So let's come out with something really strong and hopefully hang on to those consumers as we roll out other EVs in the future. What about you personally? Any favorite EVs? I saw on social media that you were playing around with a Hummer recently, all electric Hummer. What's got you excited at this moment? The Hummer was dramatic. I drive all of them. (laughs) The Hummer was not really a peaceful experience. It was, you know, an incredible piece of engineering, but it wasn't that quiet. It's huge. So you really have to pay attention when you're driving it. And it's ridiculously fast, especially for a 9,000 pound machine. So for me, it wasn't a very Zen drive, although it was incredible. I do like the Hyundai. That's been one of my favorites of late. The Ford Mustang Mach-E is really good as well. My kids love them because I, I can drive a little crazy a little fast. It's thrilling for them. I would also say the Ford Lightning really surprised me. You know, Ford took, basically didn't overthink it. They took this pickup truck that they sell 900,000 of a year and they put an electric drivetrain in it. And I don't love the regular Ford F-150 pickup. It's fine. But in an electric form, it's incredible. It's really quiet. The music sounds great. It's very peaceful. You carry anything you want. It's super capable. I really enjoyed that one more than I realized. I pulled up at daycare and it was a rainy day and I had to get my daughter all dressed and I just popped the hood where there's now a front trunk, they call it. And I just put my daughter, stood her in there and got her dressed and she was nice and dry. And it was kind of this aha moment of, of how great these vehicles can be. Yeah. uh, So my colleagues at IDEO, where I work, will be thrilled to hear we've worked with Ford for a long time, for many years, and also really excited that Ford helped, I think, change some perceptions around cars as actually being battery storage devices, um, electric storage devices, by allowing you to plug machines into it to having normal outlets and, you know, really changing the vehicle to be a power station for work as well as potentially for your home. And to harness you know, a lot of renewable energy for the grid that otherwise would just be lost, especially there in California with solar. I think that's something where the vehicle to grid stuff, I think it's something we're going to hear a lot more about in the next few years. And sort of the general population is going to key in on that and, and what a great application it is, especially in the middle of this country. Agreed. Kathy, I know you're not a car writer, but you can still double our sample size of this focus group. Do you have a favorite EV? Well, I have a Tesla Model 3, 
which I really, really, really like. And my husband, for our, our other car, we have a ranch in Ojai, California, which is about you know 75 miles as the crow flies from where I live in Santa Monica. And so he's actually looking for, because we actually have, it's 20 acres and we have, it's an agricultural property. He's looking for a, a pickup, an electric pickup, but he's looking for a small one. Remember the old days when Toyota used to have little pickup trucks? They all did. All of the, I mean, the first generation of pickup EVs are all really big, like the Lightning and the Chevy Silverado. So he's kind of hanging in there waiting for when am I going to be able to get a little pickup so that I can like haul my avocado crop around or my agave crop around. <laughs> Great. Well, now that we've conducted that extensive poll, let's talk about demand for the EVs and really understand the people that are buying them. Do they stand out in terms of their demographics or interests? I live in California as well, so it's hard for me to gauge. Here, it seems EVs are just totally widespread. But who's actually buying EVs today? Yeah, it's getting interesting. It was very coastal for a long time, and it was very much focused on the so-called ZEV states or the states that have zero emission mandates that would include California. But it's starting to spread out through the country as people, more buyers are looking at these on their own technical merits, not so much as a climate strategy. So Texas is becoming a huge market. Oklahoma is becoming a very huge market. Some of the cities in the middle of the country that have air quality issues. So you see a lot of adoption in Utah because of the Salt Lake, uh, Colorado as well. We did a huge poll recently, about 5,000 owners. But you know, beyond geographics, it's, it is what you ex- might expect demographically. It's mostly affluent consumers. It's mostly people in standalone housing that have a garage or a driveway to charge. It's mostly families that have more than one vehicle. And then we've seen a lot of super users. So a lot of households with more than one EV. So 14% of the people we surveyed recently had more than one electric vehicle in their household. And then of recent buyers, S&P Global Mobility says about a quarter of the folks buying an EV this year already own an EV and were either trading it in or getting a second one. So the folks that have adopted the technology are sort of going all in and doubling down, if you will. If you are someone that's currently considering an EV or you're just in the market to buy a car right now, what are some of the things that you should consider as you debate between an EV and a car with an internal combustion engine? Well, if you're thinking about the climate, the science is pretty clear that the EV is a far better choice, but people should also think about their driving patterns. So the carbon footprint on making an electric vehicle is larger by a fair amount than making a gas-powered car. So the climate-conscious thing to do is to only buy as much EV as you might need. This is not a very American thing to do when it comes to the auto industry, but look at the battery sizes of these cars, look at the ranges take a good audit of your own driving habits and tendencies. Be realistic about how often you really go on a long road trip. And when you do, how often do you really drive five hours straight without stopping for a meal? Just be realistic about charging and what you might need in a vehicle. And then from there, I think you'll find, and Kathy can, will probably back me up on this, but most of the reservations people have about electric vehicles vanish pretty quickly once they actually own one. So that would be charging infrastructure, charging speed, the durability and longevity of the battery, 
and then you know how green these cars are but all those things are once you own own one of these once you get used to it understand how to live with it all those anxieties tend to fade which is why you see people buy two three four of these things and what about cost how does cost compare are ev buyers paying more and what about the credit from the Inflation Reduction Act? The climate bill signed into law in August. It includes a $7,500 tax credit. How does that affect the price comparability of EVs? Yeah, I mean, they still aren't very affordable. And part of that is due to the supply situation right now. So not only are these companies not making a lot of these vehicles, but the ones they are making, they're tending to make the more lavish models and variants and and the ones with lots of expensive options on there because they can because the demand is there so in october in a in the u.s the sticker price on an electric vehicle is an average of fifty nine thousand dollars that's about 25 percent more than a gas car in that same period so you're looking at you know fifteen sixteen thousand dollars difference the ira incentives are up to $7,500 for a new EV, but there's a lot of qualifications on that. So there's some requirements on where the cars are made and battery components to qualify for that for that full figure. And then there's income thresholds and price thresholds. So it's not a blanket $7,500, but for some, it, it could make the difference. There's three things in the IRA bill that were that were really critical, I think, for the space. Number one, it abolishes the volume cap. So under the old policy, once an automaker sold 200,000 units of a model, they didn't qualify for the incentive anymore. That's gone. So Tesla's qualify. There's also a portion of the bill that calls for incentives for used EVs up to $4,000 a vehicle, which is massive for the technology and, and for the industry. So to really get that long tail going and, and get some other buyers some money to get into these cars. And then they they moved it forward so the incentives are can be a cash on the hood payout. You don't have to wait until you file your taxes. That's going to make a huge difference for a lot of people as well. The supply demand thing that we talked a little bit about, there has been more demand than supply. What my colleagues have told me is over the past 12 months or so, EVs have been going over sticker price because they could. I think what we'll be seeing, Jason, early in 2023 is more supply. Like each of the manufacturers, each of the OEMs are ramping now. And so it's going to be more supply. So that should alleviate some of the, some of the price pressure to the benefit of consumers. And if you overlay on top of that, the consumer incentives through that are coming in through the IRA, then lots and lots of Americans will find EVs to be a good buy. Yeah. And also, I'm sure there's the math that you have to do in terms of how often are you filling it up and the cost of gas, of course, creating uh, a major incentive to have an electric vehicle where you're not constantly oh, spending $100 at the pump. There is a force in the market of, of people that are, you know, if they're buying their first EV, I've heard quite a lot from analysts, they've seen data that people are willing to pay up and to stretch to make that purchase. Someone who might otherwise be driving a $30,000 affordable car might really go for it. That's a lot of what we're seeing in the market at the moment. They're excited about the technology. They want to get in there. Um, they don't want to wait around two or three years for their first TV. 
Kyle, you brought up a concern around charging, and that's really where EVgo comes in. And so, Kathy, I'd love to hear from you about what EVgo is doing, the problem that you're trying to solve, and how you're doing it. And you know, really, this comes back to the the question of filling up electric vehicles and being able to charge them when you're away from your home. So, EVgo has been around for about a little more than a decade. We are the most expansive public fast charging network in the country. So we're, you know, in 60 metropolitan markets, 30 states, we've got close to 3000 charging stalls available for fast charging. So it's really important, I guess, for people to consider what's the charging infrastructure ecosystem look like. You can actually plug your EV into a re- little regular, the same outlet that you plug your electric toothbrush into. It takes a long time to charge the battery, but it's, and we call it trickle charging because the electrons are kind of trickling into your battery, but you can do it. You can also have like a, a 240 volt, like kind of like a dryer outlet installed in your garage by your electrician, not a big drama. And then you'll be able to do overnight charges at home if you've got a garage. Now, 30% of Americans don't have access to home charging. They either don't have a garage or they live in an apartment or whatever. So that's where companies like EVgo come in. What we do is we build fast chargers where people are going to be anyway. So we build fast charging stations in grocery store parking lots or next to the gym or other retail shopping centers or near the near the softball park where your kids play sports, where people are going to go be for 15 minutes to an hour and you can actually go in and you get a fast charge. Now, what's the definition of a fast charge? In the old days, when I joined EVgo in 2017, it was 50 kilowatts. Now, what we're deploying as a, as a fast charging company, our typical installation is six 350 kilowatt charging stalls. Okay. There's not even one EV on the market at this point that can take 350. I mean, unless Kyle corrects me, if he may have some later information than I do, but nothing that's available commercially can do even that 350. So what we're doing is we're skating ahead of the puck a little bit because we know that the batteries are getting more and more powerful, which means that the charging is going to be able to happen more and more quickly. The speed with which of an EV recharges is determined first and foremost by the battery in the car. Each EV has its own, almost like a fingerprint of a battery chemistry and configuration that allows it, it's called the charge curve. So like when you plug in a a very fancy Porsche Taycan, the max charging speed, it starts off at 270 kilowatts, and then it tapers down over the duration of that charge. The battery engineers have specified this to conserve the life of the battery. That's true for Teslas. That's true with every single EV. None of them charges at that maximum capacity for the entire charging session. We at EVgo, we sit there and we're like ready to take these cars. And we, what we do very cleverly is we match the power that goes into the car to the car's thirst at any given moment in its charging session. We build these all over the place. And as I say, we've got, you know, we're in, we're in 60 metropolitan markets. What we do is we get paid back for that investment, I mean, each one of our charging stalls costs about somewhere between $125,000 and $150,000. It's 2,000 components. It's high power. It's sophisticated. It's got to be safe. So we make our money back as a company by people using those stations over time. And so anyway, that's what our business is. We're really excited about what's happening with policy and what the federal government funds, because what's enabling us to do is expand our geographic footprint faster than we otherwise might into new geographies where Today, there might not be that many EVs, but we know they're coming. That's sort of what we do in a nutshell. We try to create the comfort amongst drivers so that charging is not an inhibitor to buying that EV. 
Well, let's talk about that footprint and how you're expanding it. I think when you're mentioning the federal policy, perhaps you're referencing the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program that's allocating $5 billion to states over the next several years to build out charging stations. Tell us about the footprint. And really, when we think of it from a user experience, how far are most drivers from a charging station? And how will that change in the coming years as you're able to, to grow the footprint? The majority of Americans right now are within 10 miles of, of an EVgo station. We have built mostly in metropolitan areas where most people live. That's not a benevolent thing for us. That's actually because we actually can get a return on that investment because if we build assets where people are living and charging, then we can actually have, run a business that's sustainable. What NEVI is doing, the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program, is allocating money to every single state in America to create ubiquity of charging infrastructure, of fast charging infrastructure on highway corridors. And the policy objective there is to have at least four fast charging stalls every 50 miles on every designated highway in America. And that's a big, bold move, really important, but it's really, really, really an important public policy objective because they, you know, like us, realize that, that if people don't feel like they're going to be able to charge their EV when they go to grandma's upstate, they might not buy an EV. So all of the state, the, the funds, the $5 billion is going to be administered by each individual state, the state departments of transportation. And each state had to prepare a plan that the federal government had to sign off on. This all sounds very bureaucratic, but when you've got that much taxpayer money in play, you actually want some checks and balances on it. All of those state plans are a little bit different, but they were all approved by the federal government at the end of September. And so that money will start to flow at the state level starting in 2023. It'll go three, four, five years. I mean, I'm not exactly sure when. It depends on how effectively each state administers those funds. But companies like EVgo, what we're doing is we're saying, where do we want to build next? Where, do, where would we like to play? And so we've had conversations with over 40 state departments of transportation and are planning to apply for funding that can help offset the cost of us building this very expensive infrastructure to create that convenience and reliability of charging for everybody in America kind of literally priming the pump for EV adoption in places like South Dakota and, you know, rural areas where it doesn't pencil for Kathy to build a station right now. Let's talk about the user experience a little bit more and really understand the difference, right? As we're used to just pulling up to a gas station, filling up our tank in a few minutes, it provides a chance, maybe go to the bathroom, oh, buy some Skittles, check your, uh, your email, send a text, and you're on your way again. But filling up with electricity takes a bit longer. And so the user experience is, is different. You said that you've been building EVgo stalls at locations where people are stopping and are intending to spend some time, places like shopping malls or restaurants, grocery stores. How long are they actually plugged in? And what's that experience? Here's what's really interesting, Jason. It's such early days of the sector. There's not a firm behavior established yet, and, and lots of drivers are different. But what we're seeing is that most people are not depleting their battery to zero and then waiting to charge. They're doing top-ups. So again, this is why it's really cool. You, if we have a, if we have four charging stalls in front of a Safeway, somebody will go and they're going to go plug in, shop for 20 minutes or so and come back out and they will have topped up their battery. They won't pleat it down to zero. What we know from our data is that we actually are at the average spend for a charging session on our network right now is about $8.50 or something like that. So that's not a full charge necessarily, but that's telling us people are topping up when it's convenient. So convenience charging, it's almost like 
it's like how I do my, my cell phone. Like I don't ever deplete my cell phone to zero. It's like if I'm near a plug, I plug it in. And that's what we're trying to do with charging infrastructure. Now the highway stuff is a little bit different. You really do want to have ultra fast charging on highways because people, they don't necessarily want to hang around for 45 minutes. They might want to just get as many kilowatt hours as possible in 15 minutes. So again, that's why we're deploying, like we're working with Pilot Flying J, which has a bunch of the truck stops on highway corridors that also serve light duty vehicles. And we're partnering with them to deploy 2000 ultra fast charging stalls on highways across America over the next few years. Well, I think you've both started to paint the picture of this not just being, oh, a new trend, but really a transition. And we know that there are requirements around the country and around the world for phasing out gas-powered cars. So it's clear we've begun a transition to electric vehicles. And I know for buses, hydrogen power might be important, and there's other solutions for other types of transportation. But for passenger vehicles, it seems clear we're transitioning to electric. What do you both see as the most significant remaining barriers to that transition? There are no showstoppers. The issue is, what is the speed with which that transition will happen, right? So the, the near-term challenges, I think, are going to be supply of vehicles, right, which has to do with chip shortages and or, you know, supply of everything, the war in Ukraine. I mean, all of those impacts are, are sort of may, maybe affecting us being able to build the cars with, at the speed with which we want. In terms of building infrastructure, there's a supply chain issue also with transformer upgrades by the utilities. You know, there's a macro trend going on, again, for climate reasons and for technology reasons to electrify everything. We call it beneficial electrification. Reduces carbon pollution by electrifying your heat pump, your stove, and your car. That requires utilities to bolster local distribution systems, to bolster the grid at the local level, which requires transformer upgrades. The supply chain on transformers right now has gone from, I don't know, six weeks to many, many months. When we, EVGO, go to build a six charger stall at a shopping center somewhere, we need to work with the local utility. They're excited to help us out because they love the idea of electrification of transportation, but they still need to order the transformer. We can't build our station and turn it on until they put the transformer in. So a near-term inhibitor to the pace with which we do this is the electric utility's ability to meet the growing demand at the local distribution level. Again, totally surmountable, but there is a near-term issue associated with that. I would echo Kathy on on the supply being a major, not deterrent, but it might hamstring the technology for a few years for sure. I also think there's a lot of misinformation about the technology and EVs are getting dragged into the culture wars a little bit because the Biden administration has been so aggressive on this front, you see some conservative politicians attacking that, not really productive ways and often not really sound ways, but you do see, you see it slipping into the narrative a little bit that, um, oh, these vehicles aren't as green as people say, and they're not as green as a gas-powered car anyways, and which is not true. There's nuances there, and yes, it takes a lot of carbon to make one of these vehicles, but that is something that's going to hold hold the technology back with some people and in some parts of the world. I think ultimately, the products are just so much better. The counter to that is so easily that the products, the performance yeah. is so great. It used to be, as Kyle said at the outset, it used to be kind of a blue state, red state thing. Demand for EVs was growing in, in states that voted blue. And we don't see that anymore. Our fastest growing markets are in Texas and Florida. Like, wow, it's not political anymore because you got lots of choices for the urban cowboys. So I just did a story on the secondhand market for people that with with these huge truck EVs and they're selling like crazy. 
in red states and Oklahoma and Texas, and they're selling on the auction auction secondhand markets for huge premiums. And I talk to a lot of these people, and many of them are climate deniers, and they just think it's the coolest truck, and they want to roll up to the football game and pop the hope and and have it full of uh, beer and snacks. And it's a really powerful piece of hardware on its own. But beyond that, I think you also have, there will be a little bit of hesitancy in terms of habit. You know, people are so used to, everyone knows what a gallon of gas is. Everyone knows how to fill up their car, how long it's going to take, how much it's going to cost. That's one thing I think, I wouldn't say you struggle with it, Kathy, but there is no sort of established metric for the speed of charging. It varies based on the car. Sometimes it varies based on the charger. Sometimes it varies based on the weather. And each of these car makers talks about it differently. How long it takes to get from 5% to 80% full in the battery or 20% to 70%. And all that's kind of confusing for customers that don't want to do the work. And a lot of customers do want to do the work, but there will be some laggards. So I think that's part of the market as well. I take as my job at EVgo to have it be that the, the drivers don't have to worry about it or think about it. No driver should really have to know the difference between a kilowatt and a kilowatt hour. They should be able to just rock up and, and like do convenience charging when they're doing something else. And that's, we've designed our business on that. If they want to dig in and understand charge curves, sure, but right. they shouldn't have to. They should just be comfortable like, okay, I'm going to go spend I'm going to go shopping. I'm going to spend eight bucks. I'm going to come out. My battery's going to be full. And then I'm going to go off I go. So it's on us to make it convenient and reliable. One of the things that we do at EVgo is we, we we build an innovation lab in El Segundo near LAX. And we invite every single EV manufacturer, every OEM to come when their cars are still almost undercover and test it with every single kind of charger. Because, you know, what we now have on our network, we're probably charging, you know, Tesla's got four models or whatever on its closed network. EVgo has to be able to charge 47 different models of EVs. Each one of those EVs has a different battery charge curve, different software, different firmware. The software and firmware get upgraded all the time. Plus there's different charging infrastructure. There's level two, there's all the different manufacturers of the fast chargers. So what we do is we say, you guys, to create a great diver experience, we got to work together. We've got to make this seamless. So bring your kit to our place and let's test it all and let's figure out how to make this really, really easy for drivers. And it's helping. It's absolutely helping, but we're not there yet. And Kathy, when you think about the long-term innovation possibility to, to make the user experience even better so that it's more seamless and drivers really don't have to think about the charging experience, do you see possibility for being able to charge while you drive? I've heard of some some folks testing the technology to actually enable you to charge on the road. I've seen that too. Given road maintenance issues of America, <laughs> I'm not highly confident that we'd be able to maintain <laughs> those pads to be able to do it. I mean, I think look, I think it'll be it'll be a fun and interesting thing. I don't think it'll be the major way that people charge because there's just too much power coursing through, you know, these cables to do it quickly. So I, I think that the practicality of that is probably a long way off if ever. But I will tell you that what, one of the things that we did over the past couple of months is we launched something that's called Auto Charge Plus, which is again, all about enhancing the driver experience. Right now, when, when you, if you got a car, if you're again, if your vehicle is capable of doing Auto Charge Plus and it has to be the car, you can rock up to an EVgo station and just plug in. You don't have to swipe an RFID card or a credit card or anything. If you've registered with us, your car, then you can just plug in. And it is very, very simple. It's simpler than going to a gas station. 
because it's gas station, you still have to swipe a credit card, right? So we are continuously innovating to be able to create that seamless experience. At EVgo, you can make a reservation. If you know that you're going to be taking your daughter to piano lessons at a certain time, you want to make sure a charger is available, you can make a reservation for that charger. We've got all sorts of other bells and whistles on our system to create that sort of happy, seamless experience. Let's broaden the conversation just for a moment and look beyond passenger vehicles. I know that we've been talking mostly about cars and that's where you're mostly focused, but perhaps other parts of the transportation sector are interesting to you and maybe part of the market that you're looking at. So trucking, trucks account for 30% of global carbon emissions stemming from transportation. And we're talking about the big trucks, not just pickup trucks. Are they likewise on a path to electrification and are they a market that you're interested in? Yeah, we're really interested in it. I mean, I would be interested in Kyle's perspective about like the big, big trucks about whether hydrogen or EVs are going to win. But like there's lots of things between a light duty vehicle, a passenger car and those 18 wheelers. And we are already seeing the delivery vans going electric. That's Amazon, UPS, FedEx, all of those guys, the Penske trucks, they're going EV. And we, you know, EVgo has designed, actually, we have our own customized fleet charging software. What the fleets are all about is making sure that those vehicles are available to do their work on the duty cycle that's necessary. So we've, we've written software that optimizes charging and connects it to the fleet's own logistics software. That's absolutely an incredibly important market. We already actually on the, on the light duty side are the leading partner for Uber and Lyft. Uber and Lyft, as you may know, have made commitments to go zero emission by 2030. So they're enabling their drivers to go EV and those drivers are charging it at EVgo. So, you know, we love that because those guys, they drive a lot, so they need to charge a lot. So that's good for our business. But back to the trucks. Kyle, what do you think about hydrogen versus uh, EVs for the big ones? On the long haul, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's certainly a use case that makes more sense with hydrogen, right? Because you can do the blocking and tackling of the infrastructure that you need in just the few places that you need it. I just think last mile and middle mile is so ripe for electrification, especially last mile. If you think about those delivery trucks, you think about you know the U.S. Postal Service is replacing its fleet now. A lot of those will be electric. Those are vehicles on a very set route. School buses, same thing. They know the schedule, they know the program, and they're stopping a lot. And every time you stop an electric vehicle, you're charging the battery just a little bit. So it's kind of a it's kind of a magical use case. You know, that's one thing. Once you drive an EV for a while, if you're in traffic or you're you're doing errands around a city, you notice your range is a little better than you would expect it to be. And that's because you keep stopping. So that last mile stuff I think is really kind of a kind of a win-win for this technology. That's a huge part of the carbon footprint in this country. Let me pick your brain about the future in one other way, which is you both have a view of where we're headed in terms of this transition to new types of vehicles and electric vehicles. And I'm curious, what else will change from the ownership experience or for the user experience? Will ownership actually decline and sharing take off? What will the role of car dealers be? What about maintenance? What else will change in the experience that we have with vehicles and a personal level you know, based upon this transition? Yeah, EVgo already partners with the two biggest autonomous vehicle companies in the country that are all electric. Jason, you would know being in the Bay Area, in California, we see those vehicles driving around. When I go to New York and I talk to folks on Wall Street, they're like, that's space age, right? I said, no, 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 actually, 
you know, these cars are EVs. They're like, they are driverless and they need to charge. And so I'm pretty excited and bullish on that technology. I don't know whether it's next year that the drivers actually go away or in three years, but I think it's going to happen. If that is true, then urban car ownership will likely go down. Like my millennial kids, then when they were living in cities, in the middle of cities, were much less interested in car ownership because they had alternatives, right? And it was very easy to rent cars for short, for short trips to the mountains or whatever. So I, I think that model certainly is changing. If it's all EV, that can be good for carbon. And the charging challenges around multi-unit housing is still a thing that makes a case for car sharing or ride sharing as well. And to the extent that these vehicles are sort of becoming more like appliances now, I think you're going to see more, you're going to see more ride sharing, but you're also going to see more like interesting ownership plans. Like you see subscription services for a lot of these vehicles now. I think that's something you're going to see more of. And technologically, they're, they're kind of still like a smartphone. So an EV three years from now is going to be much more capable than what we see on the market today. And there's going to be a segment of consumers that just want the new, new thing. So I think leasing is going to be a powerful incentive as well. It's such a fun time in the sector because we're just moving from the early adopters, most of which I think Kyle mentioned this, only bought an EV if it was a second car. Now we're getting into it where people are apartment dwellers and they it's their only car and we're looking at the behaviors. And it's so noisy because there's so much, we can't typecast it yet. So we're just watching the data. But the opportunity there is, actually, as I say, to help shape those norms and to create this sort of like, okay, if we have enough chargers everywhere, everybody should just top up. I don't have patterns yet. I have a lot of curiosity about what people are going to want and like. I do think it's really fun and heartening what we're seeing about the market appetite, the market demand. I might have been a little bit more bearish on how long that would take to take hold. And it just feels to me that it's not environmentalists that are buying these. I mean, yes, it's environmentalists that are buying these. It's not just environmentalists that are buying EVs. A great note to end on. Kathy and Kyle, thank you so much for your time. Really a pleasure to have you both here. And I learned a lot. So thank you and best of luck with all the work you're doing. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.